Happening now, we'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 176 for May the 6th, 2020. I am Wes Fryer coming to you from Oklahoma City, where I'm very excited to have gotten a haircut today. I have not had one in a long time, and <clears throat> while I am certainly not wanting us to rush headlong into the reopening phases just because we apparently have a few more kits at our hospitals to test for COVID. Uh, I am very thankful that, you know, hairdressers, salons, uh, barbers, and those folks can reopen. And uh, so my, my hairstylist had her mask on, I had on mine and my hair got cut today. Um, I am joined though by the man who always looks like he has had not only a great haircut, but a good beard trim. Dr. Jason Eckford. Jason, how do you do it each week? Uh, not only with the, the background, but, you know, with the whole package, the whole thing. I am the whole package. That is true. Um, actually, I'm kind of taking advantage of the fact right now that uh, uh, haircutting services are not available in Missoula, Montana right now. And um, I I have a I have a lot of hair. It's a uh, a blessing of the knifer genes is that I have a big head of hair and my dad, who is 75 years old, still has a decent uh, head of hair at 75. So I'm hoping that that, that gene continues to, to be well with me. But as my wife likes to point out is that when I let it grow out, uh, it's, there's about a two week period where it gets kind of like this 1970s Farrah Fossa wave going for it. So the feathered back and I'm in feathered back mode. So I'm really happy for this two weeks. And then in a week or two, it's going to start looking like I am a, uh, a, an unkept mutt that needs to be uh, sent off to the clippers. But we're not just talking about my, well, let me talk about who I am first. I am Jason Neifer. I am the assistant director at Montana Digital Academy, and uh, I'm joining you tonight from Missoula, Montana, where we had a beautiful couple of days, and then the last uh, 48 hours has been pretty chill outside. So we're hoping for some 70-degree weather this weekend. Uh, my wife and I have talked about maybe finding a secluded spot to have a little picnic outside the house, which is one of the beautiful things about Montana is that if you want to socially distance, well, uh, the way my wife put it earlier this week is that socially distancing has been popular in Montana for a good couple centuries now. So uh, we uh, can find wide open spaces to go and hang out. So, uh, but I, again, I don't think we're here to talk about the weather or my hair. I think we have a bigger agenda tonight. What is the EdTech Situation Room, sir? Well, allegedly, we are here to talk about the past week's tech news through an educational lens. And we have a long list of links, which you have, again, done a yeoman's job of uh, filling in for my uh, my tardiness tonight. But uh, edtechsr.com slash links. And tonight's topics are going to be Apple News, Microsoft, Google, privacy, education in flux, disinformation media literacy, and COVID-19. You didn't think you were going to escape that one tonight. So where shall we begin tonight, Dr. Neifer? Well, lots of interesting things going on in kind of the major ecosystems communities. Maybe we should do a little uh, Google, Microsoft, Apple, and then we can jump into some of the more uh, either deeper or bigger picture stuff, depending on your perspective. So let's start off maybe with Microsoft news, a couple quick ones. Uh, first, The Verge reports on May 5th that Microsoft is still trying to make Windows 10X happen. And it is now trying to reframe that operating system as more of a Chrome book competitor. Now, to be frank, I have always thought that Windows 10X was a Chrome OS play. So I, I'm not entirely sure. And after reading the article, I don't think I have any better uh, uh, information here. But 
uh, Windows 10X uh, is is starting to become a priority on more than just they, they were going to aim it at things like their double screen devices, but now they're redeveloping it again for single screen devices. And the variant was initially supposed to be just part of their kind of play for more funky dual screen uh, futuristic looking devices. But they're going to, again, I think, try to work this out for uh, kind of single screen devices. So in other words, a laptop or maybe a tablet that's a convertible. And for those, we've talked about Windows 10X a couple times on the podcast. But in essence, it is a simplification of Windows that takes kind of a modern, uh, maybe even a, a more modern take on the Windows 10 interface and then allows apps just to be installed from the Windows App Store. Uh, and, and I'm not... In, entirely sure if I'm getting that name right. Um, I have tried out Windows 10X. Actually, I tried it out when it was Windows 10S, which was the, the precursor to Windows 10X. Um, it was fine. The part of the problem with it was was that it was limited to the Edge browser, uh, and the Edge browser, before they moved to the new Chromium version a couple months back, was it was a stable browser. It was a much better effort, in my opinion, than the previous Internet Explorer. I thought it was a stable, compelling platform, but it lacked the plugins that uh, Firefox and Chrome have. And uh, Firefox was never available on the Windows 10S platform. Chrome was never available on the Windows 10S platform. And so uh, being able to only use apps from the Windows App Store meant that I was kind of limited in what I could do. Um, I understand that that they're probably going to go for this in part because they want to think ma- make things manageable like Windows device. I'm sorry, like Chrome OS devices are for IT directors. But I've been using a Windows desktop for six weeks uh, under uh, uh, quarantine and uh, it's, it's gaming machine. I bought it's a five year old gaming machine. It's got some pretty solid guts. It's an I, a high end i7 chip. It's five year old computer, but a high end i7 chip with 32 gigs of RAM and a 500 gigabyte solid state hard drive. So this thing, this thing uh, sings quite along, but at least for power users, I, it's not quite the simplicity of Chrome OS, in my opinion. And then secondarily, I feel like if you're going to run the Windows operating system, be able to download all the funky little applications that will never make it into the Windows Store. Uh, like, for example, tonight I'm using my XSplit Cam. I think it's the name of the software that is putting a video behind me. It's what I've been using on conference calls to delight my friends and colleagues. And uh, I like this, but it doesn't necessarily mean that, um, you know, uh, and if I lose it, it's not going to be a huge deal. But I like being able to install uh varieties of softwares on Windows. So I guess I would ask you, Wes, you've worn a lot of hats in regards to purchasing over the years. Is a Windows 10X platform something attractive to you or something worth more investigation? It really isn't at this point. Uh, I think, it. you know, we all invest in ecosystems. We do that personally. Our families do. Our schools and organizations do. So if we were invested in the Microsoft ecosystem, these things would be exciting. But um, you know, we we definitely uh, have Minecraft li- education licenses, and we definitely still have a handful of you know my, what is now Microsoft 65, right? It got changed from Office 365, so we've got you know some licenses for that. But hardware-wise, very very few users, and um, no, it, it's it's not exciting. So, right. but hey, it, it's good that we've got options and alternatives out there, and 
you know, there's, there's folks that are, that are deeply invested in, in, in that, uh, operating system and in that ecosystem and, um, you know, more power to Microsoft to continue innovating. Um, but it's not going to pull me away or I don't think it's going to be dislodging our school from the Apple and Google trajectory that we have, you know, been on for like a decade. Sure. And then one other quick Microsoft article, interesting article from The Verge. Um, Slack's CEO kind of threw a gauntlet down uh, last week and said that very specifically, Microsoft Teams is not really a competitor to Slack, which is super interesting because when Teams was introduced, I think it was in 2016, um, there was an article in, I want to say the New York Times, that they took an article out in a couple of major newspapers saying, Dear Microsoft, we're excited that you've released a competitor to Slack because we think it's better to have more competitors in the space. And then the CEO a couple weeks back uh, calling, I'm sorry, last week calling out teams saying it's really not a competitor to Slack from his point of view. And I have to say, I do not use, uh, I do not use team. Actually, I don't use Slack either for that matter, but I don't use teams or Slack in context of my main day job, but I am on a Slack for a couple side projects and I am on a couple of teams as part of other projects I work on, like my work with NCCE, uh, the Northwest is the affiliate. And, um, you know, I think there's a lot of merit to this. I will tell you, I also perceive that Google Hangouts chat, which is their version of, of, of a Slack competitor. I don't think it's a competitor to Slack because the integration of external tools is not, uh, nearly as, as good as it is in Slack or Teams for that matter. But, uh, interesting that that, uh, you know, Teams has re- increased its usage dramatically in the last six weeks because of COVID. And so the fact that, uh, uh, Slack's feathers were ruffled a little bit, so much so to call out Microsoft as a non-competitor is pretty interesting. So, Wes, what's your experience on these three platforms? Any of them stick out to you as the best? You know what? I have, I have really avoided, uh, dabbling in, in those. I played very, very briefly with Slack. Um, but I, I mean, unless you are part of a work team that is invested in that, I, I don't know. It's, I, I look at this again as an investment thing in which, you know, we can't, we can't know all platforms. We can't be, uh, fluent in all things. I think we probably and the listeners of our show, shout out to Scott Summer and Peggy George, by the way, in our chat room. Um, you know, we tend to to probably be early adapters when we dabble in more things than maybe a, a typical user. But um, yeah, it's um, you know Google Universe, and I, I don't I don't think that um, you know te- Teams or Slack are really gonna gonna draw me in. We're we're definitely uh, continuing to rely heavily on on Hangout Meets, but it's a it's a different platform. So okay, great. So, and then there's a quick Apple article, and then we could either go elsewhere or we could get through the kind of pile of Google that that kind of crept up on us this week. Uh, Apple, uh, an interesting article that involves the uh, leadership at Spotify, and this is a topic we've talked about in in in, in different ways over the years. But uh, the Spotify CEO says that Apple will definitely open up more in the future, and what the Spotify CEO was referring to, by the way, this is from The Verge on May 5th, that uh, right now the the phone, the tablet, the watch are pretty locked down in what you can uh, use and install on those various platforms. And, of course, Apple prefers its Apple Music 
uh, application and that ecosystem over third parties, including the most popular app, which is Spotify. But the CEO says he expects the uh, ecosystem to open up uh, f- from what I'm reading fairly dramatically in the future, including allowing way more installables, especially on the watch operating system. So, uh, Wes, you are a resident Apple guy. I also know you're a Spotify user. So what has the Spotify experience been for you on the Apple ecosystem? Yeah, so this article is exciting to me. Um, uh, I don't know what, what it was, maybe four months ago or six months ago, um, really because of, of our of our, uh, our 16-year-old who's in 10th grade, <clears throat> you know, spun up a Spotify family um, subscription. And, and for me, the fact that we have the Google smart speakers and you cannot play Apple Music on them, I mean, just daily, I absolutely love being able to use my voice to shuffle playlists, to play specific songs, to be able to play podcasts. I mean, we, we, I don't know if this was, we had, uh, I guess it was on my phone. I had, I switched phones because my speaker was going bad. And so actually in that case, it was Siri that was just not working for me for about a week. And man, I, I didn't feel like I was dying. Okay, that's an exaggeration, but I rely on it. Like I rely on it all the time. So Spotify has been fantastic. I think this is great. Um, you know, Apple historically, when, when the iPhone first came out, there was no app store and Steve Jobs, you know, thought that Apple would provide all the apps people needed. And it was really an afterthought and, and surprised him as well as all kinds of other people to see the explosion of creativity and revenue, which happened by opening things up so that developers could, you know, put their creativity into that. And so we've, we continue to have these sorts of platform wars. Um, you know, Amazon and Apple, I think kind of made, made up. And now you have Amazon prime video that's available on Apple TV. And I'm, glad to to see from a consumer standpoint more options with devices right because it's it's unfortunate for me that i couldn't use my apple music subscription on my my google ecosystem smart speakers um you know i love spotify and the more that people are are oftentimes quick to condemn algorithms and screens and youtube and you know there are problems but when you invest in an ecosystem that is using machine learning, where it is not only learning from what you enjoy and you like and you tell it, but also what other people do to make suggestions, that's true of YouTube and it's true of Spotify, it's wonderful. It is absolutely wonderful. So I'm glad glad to hear this. And uh, I'll pick up a couple other Apple articles, actually, that, that I put Great. in. Um, yeah, Peggy had, and I'll answer Peggy's question. She says, do you use Siri to give voice commands for Spotify? I do. And I get to do that in the car. We have a, an aftermarket, uh, you know, CarPlay compatible, um, you know, stereo. And so I have my, my iPhone eight now, uh, plugged in and I can, I can say, um, well, I, I actually just push the button. I don't have to say, Hey, yes. I can say play such and such, you know, shuffle such and such playlist on Spotify. And, and I, I guess I found this out by accident because I didn't read this somewhere. You can, I can control Google Maps. I really don't like Apple Maps. I've deleted it from my phone, but I can, I can actually, if I, if I just tell uh, Siri or just ask Siri to navigate, it'll say, you don't have the Apple Maps app. But if I tell it an address in Google Maps, it will do it now. So I think that's, again, a sign of opening because it's letting that kind of control. And, hey, got the Apple Watch here. I'll be thrilled to see more capabilities there. So I dropped a couple <clears throat> Apple articles in. Um, Ars Technica, May 2nd. Face ID doesn't work when you're wearing a mask. Apple's about to address that. And as the article says, they're not figuring out how to scan through your mask to, 
you know, do something really high tech there. What they're doing is bypassing the timeout because right now, if you're wearing a mask and you have face ID, it will time out and then you'll be able to, uh, you know, put in your code, I guess. And so that's going to happen quicker in the new version of iOS. And then also, uh, this was from the same Ars Technica, but it was on April 30th. In an unusual investor call, Apple uh, reports flat quarterly earnings amidst COVID-19. Um, one of the things I thought was significant was, um, you know, Tim Cook, and, and of course, this is true for us in schools and pretty much everywhere, says it's just too hard to look through the windshield of the next 60 days to say with accuracy what's going to be happening. So they don't give a real forecast for the next few months because they can't. Uh, but Apple has still, you know, it, services revenue continue to increase and uh, they're continuing to, you know, I think they, they were profitable by just a little bit. I think they made some very smart moves with this iPhone SE. Both my wife and our middle daughter have been on the iPhone 6S and uh, T-Mobile has offered some good deals. You you basically, the best scenario is you can get about a hundred bucks uh, on the open market, maybe a little bit more, it depends on your memory and stuff, but it's that's what the retail uh, sale is going to be. And so you can do that directly with T-Mobile. Um, and so anyway, we, they literally just hooked them up last night and they've, they've both upgraded. So it's an A13 processor. It's the same form factor as this, basically the 6S and the 7 and the 8. You know, it's got the home button. It, it, it has the, this is an 8, but you know, it's got the whole bezel around and everything like that. But I mean, it's like 400 bucks and it's not a thousand dollars. And so that is, uh, Smart, I think, on Apple's part. And so from a revenue perspective, I think we'll probably see Apple do really well with that phone because at some points, you know, people have criticized Apple as well. It's just the luxury Cadillac and everybody doesn't have a thousand dollars to spend on their phone. And that's true. So I think they've, you know, offered that as a, as a new phone, uh, with a screaming fast processor because that A13 is the same processor that's in the iPhone 11 Pro. So. I am glad to see that. And for those of you that may have family members still on older phones or whatever, um, you know, you can get about a hundred dollars of credit for a 6S. Uh, when you ask, when I asked T-Mobile, you know, just the trade-in value, it was like either 12 or $16. Yeah. But because of this deal, anyway, you get this credit on your bill and you end up getting, getting a hundred dollars credit. So, yeah. All right. How about some Google stuff, sir? Sure. Well, first, I just want to share a resource, and I, I think I intended to share this last week, and it never made, made it into, I think, the notes. But there is a really great website. If you are in a Google district uh, and you are using the Google tools, there's a wonderful resource called Teach From Home. It's teachfromhome.google, and it goes through and provides not only kind of a sense of all the tools available uh, to folks at any given time, uh, and uh, they have to be turned on in your Google domain to, to access all these, but it also also gives a great set of tutorials for this. And so if you're new to the Geeko, the Geeko? If you're new to the Google ecosystem, I just try to mix two words together as I oftentimes do, uh, or if um, you are supporting users and you have maybe some new folks that are new to the Google, I did it again, uh, if they're new to the Google ecosystem and you need a good solid training resource teach from home.google is pretty amazing so i just i thought i'd start off with that but a lot of other interesting uh google um news this week first um i would uh actually let me do start with kind of a fun one um 
the USA Today reports on May 1st that there's been an interesting um, phenomenon that I don't actually say is COVID-related, but rather uh, instead um, uh, uh, it's something that's been happening, but I think it's been highlighted in the fact that YouTube's uh, viewership has gone up pretty dramatically, but it's kind of the... Uh, kind of tutorial movement on YouTube. YouTube's always been an amazing tutorial location, but it's basically everyday tutorials and people focusing on things like how they make coffee at home and how they set up their desk at home and how they work at home and how they do all the stuff uh, that's part of this process and or what I do during the day or my day you know, managing my diabetes or uh, uh, recovering from my kidney transplant, just, you know, using examples from my own life to try to do that. And they also mentioned um, uh, the, the notion of with me videos, which is this this thing where you're just doing your thing, whatever that is, a craft or hobby, or uh, maybe you're a woodworker, but you are engaging in a project and here you are, right? Like you can do it with me uh, via YouTube. And I am reminded of uh, the biggest YouTube star I know, which is Mike Agustinelli, the guy I work with at the Digital Academy. His mom, Gail Agustinelli, has the Gail Agustinelli YouTube channel. 36,000 subscribers, a thriving Etsy community. And in her retirement, um, she is engaging a large community of folks that are basically watching her craft. She does uh, scrapbooks and journals and crafting projects. And sometimes it's literally watching her clean up a craft table. But, uh, you know, she's uh, kind of making her way through that. And, you know, she calls the videos craft with me, right? Like it's craft with Gail, craft with me today. And I like this. I mean, I, I've talked a lot about how I, I've really increased my YouTube viewership in the last couple of years. I stay away from politics, generally speaking, in part because I, I need an escape from that, which is why I'm going to YouTube in the first place. But I subscribe to dozens of cooking channels. I am absolutely in love with the Bon Appetit cooking channel on YouTube. Um, and I'm not alone. There's been a lot of media in the last six months talking about how Bon Appetit has really uh, nailed the YouTube piece, right? Like they've been uh, figuring out ways to get uh, pretty charming chefs. I mean, they're not TV chefs. This is not Bobby Flay and, and Rachel Ray. This is, these people are more accessible and they act more like human beings. And sometimes their experiments fail, but uh, I love, I, I love these channels. So I thought it was interesting um, that that was noticed uh, uh, kind of as a YouTube piece. And then I'll give one other piece of of, of kind of YouTube news. Uh, PewDiePie, who we've talked about a couple of different times on the channel, uh, had moved away from Google to another streaming service, and in part because he's had some controversial uh, time on the YouTubes. Um, he has signed with YouTube. Like, YouTube is going to give him an exclusive streaming deal uh, he's had at, 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 uh, one point over a hundred million subscribers. And then he went to something called DLive, which is a, an alternative place. I don't know much about DLive. I've heard of it before, but that's, that's it. Um, but apparently YouTube is going to pay him some cash to stream exclusively on their channel. So I guess Wes, I know that you certainly watch some YouTube, but have you changed at all since COVID started? Are you watching any more YouTube, any less YouTube? I think it's continuing basically the same. Uh, you know, it's, it's a, again, back to the training thing. And when I say training, I'm just, I'm just talking about liking videos, putting videos in playlists and then watching them, you know, because that 
tells the algorithm, hey, I, I like my, I like paying attention to this. My, my, uh, my mind likes this. Show me more. And, um, that's the same thing like with Spotify or Apple Music or things like that. So, uh, no, I think it's probably continuing, but I do think that as we consider essential digital literacy skills for teachers, uh, I don't know how many of us have made that real, the, the YouTube skill set to be like, hey, we all need to be doing this. We need to be able to curate videos and playlists. We need to be able to, um, you know, uh, safely share links with students. Um, we need, you know, being attentive to, to recommended, recommended videos and, and all. And so, yeah, that would, it's just, it's pretty, pretty much the same, but I will segue and we can come back to a couple other Google articles, but I've put under the subtitle disinformation media literacy. Um, an article and then a topic that I actually can't find articles for because like or whatever your sound is like breaking news. Uh, this is happening quick. So I have some very conservative friends in my Facebook community. Um, and, and some of these folks go to our church and like, we know these people well. And so, one of the things that evidently is now happening and popping up, and I've got an article related to this that's a little bit old, is there's this new, quote, documentary called Plandemic, the hidden agenda behind COVID-19. And so somebody who um, I follow on Facebook just this evening, you know, had shared this link on YouTube this morning, uh, but it had been taken down. But he found it again, and he, po- he posted it saying, scary. And then he posted it again saying, gosh, this has been taken down, but I found it again, guys. Here it is if you want to watch it. Scary. Um, oh, my gosh. So the article that I posted that's related to this uh, is from BBC News, and it's from September – no, sorry. It's from April 7th, and it's called Coronavirus YouTube Titans Rules After David – Icky 5G interview. I don't know if I'm saying his name right. <clears throat> and if you haven't heard about this, so there's there was been a lot of hoopla over people saying <clears throat> that COVID was being caused by 5G. And so 5G infrastructure has actually, and even stuff that's not 5G, it's just cellular infrastructure has been attacked by people who are like, I'm going to stop COVID. And this kind of disinformation, YouTube has been taking down. Well, um, this, um, you know, quote documentary about pandemic, uh, I think fits into a similar category. Now, one of the things, and, and then I, I read this in a different article that a different person, it's like a, a classmate of mine from the Air Force Academy was sharing. And uh, I actually tonight, so she, she had shared this article. And before even talking about the content of this, uh, which had to do with YouTube takedowns, you know, I Googled the name or I, I, I got that website. I put it into Wikipedia and read about it because, you know, you'll, you'll, you'll get a lot of banter on, on Wikipedia. You'll get both sides. But if there's controversy over a source, that's a good place to look. Anyway, in, in this article, they say that, um, this is quoting YouTube. We have, this is quote, we have clear policies that prohibit videos promoting medically unsubstantiated methods to prevent the coronavirus in place of seeking medical treatment. And we click remove those videos violating these policies when flagged to us, a spokesman for YouTube told the BBC. And then in quotes, it also says, 
Now, any content that disputes the existence or transmission of COVID-19, as described by the World Health Organization and local health authorities, is in violation of YouTube policies. And then they were talking about the con- that in the context of 5G. So my question to you, Jason, which is an extremely easy one, and I'm sure you'll be able to just answer it in one sentence. How do we effectively and with with kindness interact with folks that we may follow and may follow us on social media when it comes to these kinds of things, because um, it's hard. Your thoughts, sir. Um, uh, here's the big challenge, right? Like you do it with love and kindness and it doesn't necessarily get across. You do it more aggressively. It shuts off the line of communication. It is an extraordinary balance that I don't really know the answer to. And, and I'll give you an example of this. Um, uh, in, uh, 2016, after, uh, uh, President Trump won election. So a couple of days after that, and folks that, that weren't big fans of, of President Trump, uh, or then President elect Trump, you know, it was a lot of, a lot of Facebook sharing going on back and forth. And there was a, a, a series of posts from a friend of mine who tends to be not particularly close to me politically, but good guy, uh, honest guy, smart guy. Um, posted an article from a less than reputable, uh, less than reputable, uh, news site, uh, that said that, you know, Time Magazine got caught with their pants down because they had predetermined that Hillary Clinton had won the 2016 election and had, uh, covers, uh, that you know, they'd already shipped out magazines with her as the winner. Um, and it ended up that, uh, they had actually printed both covers because it, it was a close election and, you know, they want to be able to get a, either, either was a history making candidate, right? Like it's hard to deny that, that the winner of the 2016 election made history, right? And they're also president of the United States, right? So history making candidates. Um, as it turns out, um, uh, Snopes had an article that talked about how they'd printed up both and that also in some regions, the Clinton cover got shipped out and time was embarrassed by it and apologized. And I think that was a story. I could be making, uh, exaggerating parts of that. But the point is I pointed out a Snopes article and I trust Snopes. I have watched them for 20 years turn into a good verifier. Their research is always well cited and it, it kind of gives me the warm fuzzies as a former debater and debate coach that I can go and click on the links that they're referring to and look at all the different sources and I can make my own judgment. And I was immediately chastised as a sore loser, uh, even though, um, I wasn't running in any elections in 2016. And then more importantly, they questioned the validity of Snopes. And that's the part that it's, it's just, it's hard to do this because if, you know, you can't, if you can't, if any source that you might cite that you consider to be legitimate is biased, right? Then that becomes really problematic, right? That it's hard to have a, a, a legitimate conscious conversation about that process. So the frank answer is, I don't know. And this is what's made the internet so incredibly difficult uh, as a resource because anyone Literally anyone has an extraordinary publishing platform at their fingers. And again, we've talked about this dozens of times in the past. We like that about the Internet, right? By we, I mean, uh, Wes and I like that about the Internet. We love giving voice to our colleagues and to our students uh, to be able to share views and share their creativity and share the good things that are going on and, and their perspective and point of view. That That's undeniable. But the problem with the fact that that everyone can share 
uh, with these technologies is that everyone can share with these technologies. And so it's not hard to put together a video uh, utilizing low-end equipment uh, that has actually a relatively high amount of production value. You put it on YouTube, and it's not difficult for that to become a worldwide sensation uh, quicker than you might think. So I would just repeat one other notion. I think I say this in the podcast a couple every couple of weeks. If you're sending kids out to the Internet to research and you're not giving them tools to at least verify their sources, you're making a mistake. Absolutely. All right. Um, let's see. Uh, you want to do the last Google, Google of the HP Chromebook? Sure. Yeah. A couple other quick, quick ones. Uh, first, uh, I did note that uh, Chrome Unboxed uh, had found some um, uh, updated uh, functionality in Chrome OS. So there's going to be a resizable, movable screenshot. Right now, you can take a screenshot. It's, if you have a regular keyboard, I think it's Control F4. Five. It's if you're on a Chromebook keyboard, then it's Control and the uh, Window um, kind of uh, expose button on the taskbar, and that takes a screenshot. Um, apparently, they're working on a way to make them resizable, so it's not the whole screen, and then you can move them around. And I think eventually they're going to make it to where that you can uh, uh, kind of annotate them too. That's great, and I'm glad they're doing that. But I also want to point out that you should be using one of the great screenshot capture and annotate tools. The one I like is Awesome Screenshot. That's actually new for me. Awesome Screenshot used to be my favorite a long time ago, but I felt like the interface was clunky. It is not anymore. It is amazing and really professional and crisp looking, but don't do that. Uh, don't, you know, don't just stick with the Chrome OS version. Get the plugin. And then uh, Chrome Unbox also reported uh, yesterday that HP has launched 10 I'm sorry, three new 10th generation Intel Chromebooks for enterprise. And the reason why I like that is because enterprise Chromebooks mean better chips, more RAM, and likely to be a little hardier than consumer versions, and then sometimes not always education versions. And I'll repeat my usual advice that if you want to go into Chromeland, and my favorite laptop is still a Chromebook, I love Chromebooks. Um, as a power user, I love Chromebooks. Um, do yourself a favor, spend a little bit of extra money, get an i3 or i5 chip, get eight gigs of RAM, get a 1080p screen, uh, get a big battery or the kind of pro functionality, you will be a much happier customer. Your return on investment is going to be greater. You're going to get yeah. that fun. And if that just goes back to the iPhone SE, an A13 processor in that right. chassis is going to last a while. And yeah. these devices haven't necessarily plateaued completely, but the function of, of, uh, of a laptop as well as a smartphone, you know, it's, yes, you could get a better camera. Yes, you could have a few more features, but the OS core, whether you're on Android or uh, iOS, is, is really similar. So it's important to pay attention to that because whether right. it's a family purchase or it's a, an enterprise purchase for school, uh, we want to use these things for a while and making that, I totally agree, making that investment in, in the greater RAM and the faster processors is going to mean that you can use it for a longer period of time. Right. And I'd like to note that uh, Chromebooks, if you buy a new one, a Chromebook is an eight-year supported device now, right, which 
uh, is extraordinary, right? That's not, uh, that, that's not, uh, the case, uh, universally in, in either of the other two architectures. And so if you are looking for a long-term investment and, you know, you want an eight-year device, buy a faster processor, buy a little more RAM, buy a higher definition screen, and then use the device for eight years. And in fact, I have a couple of older Chromebooks that I bought used, but 2013 high-end Chromebook and a 2015 high-end Chromebook. Um, one of them stopped receiving updates because this was before they'd extended to eight years, but that 2013 Chromebook is excellent. It's the original Chromebook uh, Pixel, and it is a fast, beautiful machine. It's still, and it, I wish they kept updating it because it would be just fine with the modern software. So something to keep in mind. And Scott Summer is echoing much of what you said saying Chrome Unboxed is a great Chromebook resource and he's loving his Pixelbook more so even than his school issued MacBook Pro. So that is some, some high praise. Awesome. I would like to go to a couple COVID articles. Um, so this first one, uh, I'm not going to go through the whole rabbit hole of how I got to this, but it, it has to do with somebody from India that I connected to doing some keynotes over video conference a few years ago. Um, it's uh, from a website called Worlds of Education on April 9th. What the COVID-19 pandemic will change in education depends on the thoughtfulness of education responses today. Um, and so this is coming to us from Harvard University and um, this uh, initiative. And this is the, the professor is the Ford Foundation professor in the practice of international education and the director of the Global Education Innovation Initiative of uh, at Harvard University. And anyway, there's a there's a big collaboration. They have a link uh, to one of the things. Uh, I don't actually think I put that in my my Geeks of the Week. I had too many things. Um, but it, it's a, they have a curated list of, of resources. But <clears throat> this is taking a global look at COVID-19 and what it is doing to, you know, students as well as the work and labor forces worldwide. And one of the things he's arguing is, you know, public schools were established to try and level the playing field. So it wasn't just, you know, children of privilege and wealth who were going to have educational opportunities. And so in this environment, unfortunately, those who do have greater access and, of course, also just have have a safe place with food and, you know, people that are more affluent are are weathering this and being able to continue education, whereas the poor are really suffering. But it depends on how we respond and what he is encouraging, not just here in the United States, but globally, is for leaders to really invest in education and to invest in resources uh, and, and to, you know, we've talked about the digital divide. And anyway, I think this is an outstanding article that, that I want to bring to people's attention. And then the other one, which I learned about through a video conference this week, is actually an open letter. And so this is from uh, Kennesaw University. It is from two professors and researchers, Ben Scafidi and Eric um, Wern. And it's titled An Open Letter to Independent School Leaders. But <clears throat> whether you are with an independent private school or not, like what they are forecasting is really, really helpful in terms of thinking about what school may need to look like and also enrollments. And they're, they're talking about, you know, um, how private and independent schools are, are going to, you know, what are their best op opportunities for providing you know, a compelling case for, for families 
paying that money and, and making that kind of investment. Um, so they're talking about health and safety. They're talking about crisis management plans when teachers, staff, or students test positive for coronavirus. Um, they're talking about, uh, you know, some financial aspects, but then, you know, work environment and how can we best educate students who may be toggling between school, school, home, um, you know, back and forth. And so uh, I do not have a crystal ball, but of course there's a lot of smart people out there who are trying to project what, what things might look like. And uh, okay. 1918 and the Spanish flu, which by the way, this is a coronavirus. It's not a flu, but it's acting very flu. Like there were three big waves based on the things that I'm reading it is very logical and we're having this opening happen in Montana and Oklahoma and other states, you know, some, some faster than others. We're going to have another wave of cases and we might have several. That's what they had in 1918. Of course, we know so much more scientifically than we did before. Um, this is a really good letter that a lot of people have been reading as they're trying to make plans for what the fall might look like. Uh, and so I just wanted to commend that to folks. And, you know, if you've got other resources that are like that, uh, this is what everybody's trying to figure out. I do think it's, you know, important to recognize, especially for colleges and universities. So our son graduates on Friday. Yay. From college. Uh, our daughter just finished her freshman year today. She did her last final. So Sarah's a sophomore. Yay, Sarah. Um, you know, universities and colleges have a huge financial interest to find ways to, you know, stay open and, and have face-to-face classes and to try to navigate this. Um, I just, I, it's going to be so interesting what families want to choose and whether schools are going to give an option to families, right? Because if you don't want your kids to go back, then is there going to be a remote learning option for your students? And if you, as let's say a teacher, are immune, uh, immune compromised, um, or, or you're older, like, are you going to be able to teach remotely? Um, or are you going to be required to keep your job to go back? Um, all of those things are pretty, pretty important. So Jason, any updates on the Montana opening and uh, school environment? And what, what about the digital Academy? Hey, you guys are already online, but I mean, you guys are supporting kids in face-to-face schools. So any, right. Any, uh, good insights that you have as you gaze through your crystal ball tonight? Well, my crystal ball isn't particularly uh, accurate either. And in fact, I, I've not been a particularly great prognosticator when it comes to things like enrollments in our program. But I will tell you that um, we are in the middle of discussions. I noticed the national media highlighted that uh, Willow Creek School in Montana was the first school in the nation to open uh, uh, this week. Uh, I don't know if that's exactly true, but it probably is. And I didn't like the way the national media covered it because uh, you know, people don't really get how rule, uh, rule really is. Uh, we have a, a sometimes a kind of an internal uh, joke or bemusement in, in Montana that people think that, you know, uh, towns like Missoula are rural. And we are a smaller town. It's just 100,000 people uh, in kind of larger uh, 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 area of Missoula. But we have much more remote cities than that. And in fact, um, uh, nearly two thirds of the schools uh, that we serve at Montana Digital Academy are well less than 150 students, uh, uh, 912. And many of them are under 50 students, 912. And they're in tiny towns in remote places. And 
I, I think that that's going to be an interesting question uh, for this fall. And I, I just to read you a little bit about the letter from the professors of Kennesaw State, they they are quote, quoting Dr. Fauci, the uh, uh, the director of the the immunization efforts at the United States uh, and representative of the task force, uh, President Trump's task force on coronavirus. And, um, you know, he's been clear that he thinks we could probably open up this fall, but like everyone always tempers that recommendation uh, with the notion that we're not through this yet. Right. And even in Montana, as we debated opening and we are kind of sort of through phase one uh, of, of reopening and some cities have chosen to actually utilize their local authority. Missoula County has not opened up nearly as aggressively as, as some smaller areas across the state of Montana. But what is interesting about that is that a lot of people are talking about, and they're right about this, people that just have disagreed with the opening has said, or I'm sorry, disagreed with closing down in the first place have said, the point of closing down wasn't to get rid of the coronavirus threat. The point of closing down was to flatten the curve, right? That we would always have uh, probably some pretty nasty stuff go through the community as part of this, you know, uh, 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 virus, but we just want to make sure that our healthcare system is prepared for that. And I, that was a really good argument, right? It was never been about getting rid of COVID. It's been about flattening the curve so that we didn't overwhelm our medical system so we could deal with COVID um, appropriately at the medical level. So I don't have the good answers here either. I know that um, that it's tough. And in fact, I, I've had a couple of conversations in the last couple of days. I'm not going to be in a position to have to go back to a physical workplace in part because literally there's been no change in my workday since I moved home. Right. I am the assistant director of a state virtual school. Um, uh, many of our uh, of, of our part time and one of our full time employees are actually two of our full time employees are already working out of their houses. And although I like going to the office in part because I work on a beautiful campus in a beautiful city and I like being around my colleagues, I like seeing my boss and I like seeing the men and women I work with on a daily basis. I like being in their presence. I like working with them. We're doing just fine uh, here. So I won't be asked to, to, to risk my health, even though I'm an immunocompromised individual. But I, I, I can't wrap my brain around how hard these discussions are going to be. And to be honest, um, you know, uh, people who are immune to compromise are, are protected in the American with Disabilities Act, right? And I don't know what that looks like in a COVID world, right? I mean, do you put a teacher behind plexiglass or like, I don't know. Right. I couldn't teach that way. I was always walking up and down the aisles and putting microphones in kids' face, Donahue style, because uh, I like to have conversations in my class with kids. But I don't know. And maybe I'm glad we're having these discussions. I'm glad people are starting to do the, you know, let's think about school differently discussions. I think now is about the time to do that. It was too much six weeks ago. Now's the time. But unfortunately, it's going to be a lot of talk until we know more about this virus. Well, I would encourage everybody to continue to check sources. Um, Wanda Terrell, who uh, Peggy and, and Scott may follow also, uh, had shared something from Ontario that I was kind of chasing down a little bit in Facebook. Like, where did this screenshot come from? Because they were talking about, you know, kids being rigid, first graders not being able to move in their desks all day. And and maybe that is what people are doing. It just it sounds crazy. Whenever we whenever we hear something that triggers an emotional response in us, one of the things we need to do first is read laterally, look for the source, go to the original and then you know see who else is saying that. But 
Um, yeah, that that was the most outlandish thing I've heard so far about how somebody is, is going to be opening and going back. Uh, we could not be chronologically, according to our state and, and federal guidelines, in stage three for opening until mid-June. So the first decision we'll face as a school is going to be whether or not to have face-to-face summer camps and then also, of course, athletics and all those kinds of things. Uh, but, yeah, it's it's going to be pretty interesting to see how all of, of these things fall out. So would you be willing, Dr. Neifer, to tackle your Education in Flux articles because both sure. they look pretty interesting? Yeah, uh, the one I think uh, there's there's definitely an article, and I might actually skip this one in next week because it, it could be a bit of a rabbit hole. There was a really interesting expose in Recode on May 4th about kind of the paranoid about paranoia about cheating is making an online when they say online education, they really mean uh, you know remote. both my my model of, of distance learning and also remote teaching make it terrible for everyone. And and I, I have some things to kind of talk about about my regular program there. So let me focus on the one that's probably uh, 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 kind of related to the topic we just talked about. New York Times had a fascinating article about. Uh, the headline is parking lots have become a digital lifeline and they talk to people who do not have home internet access for a variety of reasons, financial a- a- ability to get access. I mean, there's, there's dozens of things and, and, and having run, uh, help run the, the state virtual school in Montana, I know about a lot of interesting reasons why people don't have internet at home, but people are literally taking their laptops and they're setting up shop in the parking lot of public libraries, universities, um, uh, fast food places that offer uh, Wi-Fi and they sit down and work on their online class. Or there are kids that are, are taking advantage of clever schools that send buses around town with Wi-Fi hotspots in them and park them in parking lots so people can access the Internet. And there are some stunning statistics in this article that talk about uh, the lack of Internet access and they cite a Pew Research Center, by the way, excellent source, Pew Research Center study that one in four Americans has no high-speed Internet access at home, which to wow. me is shocking. And I know how big of a problem it is in rural Montana. It's, 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 it's an issue in places like Missoula because we don't have very many alternatives here, right? So there's no competition, which means it's not stable as it should be. Um, I won't mention the provider, but there's still a DSL provider that advertises, uh, 2.5 megabit down DSL, which is really the DSL I was u- utilizing in 1997 in Helena, Montana as, as a somehow a viable option. But I have perfectly great 100 megabit internet uh, cable. Actually, it's 110 megabit uh, uh, cable internet down uh, at my home. Uh, it's, it's only 10 up, but it's been fine for conference calls supporting two users, me and my wife. But this is something we got to talk about, right? Like if um, and last week we had articles that talked about that uh, uh, stable access to the internet is going to be required for the economic revival we're going to need to get out of let's call it a recession, even though it's not technically a recession yet, whatever doom is coming to us in the next couple of quarters. But how is it that in, in, in 2020, one in four Americans don't have broadband access in their homes, right? And it, it's a utility now, right? Like it's a connection to the outsides, the ability to access education, it's the ability to access content and government forms. And the census was on the internet this year. And I just, I can't believe that here we are and we're still trying to fumble around 
the internet access issue. And I know, Wes, you have a variety of options as well. So this is not uh, uh, something for you in, in more urban Oklahoma. But my guess is, is there are plenty of places in Oklahoma that don't have a ton of choices or no choices at all. Yeah, we've, we've talked about this before. We're, we're very similar in that we're an extremely rural state. I mean, outside of Oklahoma City and Tulsa, which are very large, relatively speaking, urban areas, 1.2 million for Oklahoma City. Um, I think Tulsa is a little smaller, but, you know, we're, we've got over 500 school districts, most of which have less than 200 students, uh, all of which have a superintendent. And there's always these fights about, you know, consolidation, yada, yada. But, yeah, huge disparities. Um Two Saturdays ago, I had a, a wonderful Saturday conversation with several different educators, one from McAllister, uh, and they, you know, have large, large numbers of their kids at their high school, 2,000 kids that, that just don't have high-speed internet connectivity. So um, one of the things that I'm reminded of as a quick story, <clears throat> back in probably 2003, I wrote a couple grants for local schools, Floyd Data, Texas, Post-Texas, to participate in what was called the Texas Immersion Pilot Project, which was a state-funded initiative to go one-to-one in middle schools and have actual control group studies. So all these schools applied, and then some got laptops and some didn't, but everyone was in the study. And so anyway, uh, one of the stories that happened with Floyd Ada, which is a, a pretty small community, uh, probably most famous for its pumpkins that they uh, grow that are wonderful and shipped all over the place, was before school, I guess before daylight savings time or whatever, these glowing apples that were around the building, you know, and these kids that were there plugging in because they didn't have Wi-Fi elsewhere. And then just all the different places in the community. And there's all kinds of stories about, you know, people pulling into parking lots and things like that. So fascinating that, that it, I mean, it's becoming like electricity. Okay. Internet today. In fact, I would argue right now in our COVID-19 neo-coronavirus pandemic, like it is as important as, as water and electricity because this is how we do commerce. This is how you safely get groceries to your house. Of course, someone is, is putting themselves at risk to deliver that and to be at the store, but you know, delivery of groceries, e-commerce, uh, and learning. I mean, online learning. Someone said, um, actually, I think it was uh, Ashley Reed from the Oak Ridge School on Tuesday. We really haven't been doing remote learning. We've been doing emergency remote learning, and we need to continue to make that uh, more remote learning and then eventually think about online and distance learning and some of those best practices if we're going to continue to support students at home. But all of that to say, it's absolutely critical. And back to that article I shared from the Harvard professor, we need to invest. And, and I think, and this is, I'm going to just speak to myself here. I mean, I need to contact my representatives and, and my senators and emphasize the advocacy we need for investment because it's not, this stuff doesn't happen. You don't get high speed internet in rural communities without regulation and intervention. And it, it, you can't just wait for the return on investment to bring, you know, high speed internet the last mile to extremely uh, low population density communities. Um, Peggy's asking, and we'll throw this one to you, uh, Jason, where do you think the blame lies for lack of internet access, legislatures and funding? Uh, that's part of it, but to be honest, uh, you know, we, we've had a lot of federal money available to rural areas, and I think I talked about a couple years ago when this happened that a, 
um, a wireless provider that will uh, remain nameless on this podcast did take a lot of uh, wireless Internet monies from uh, the federal government to put in more towers to try to provide a wireless access, which makes a lot of sense from an infrastructure standpoint, didn't complete the job, took the money anyways. And then when other providers wanted to step in and get access to monies to provide that, were told they couldn't because the money that area was already covered. And we also had issues where uh, uh uh, people that lived on farms and ranches and and uh, large chunks of property around Montana that were utilizing wireless Internet. So what I mean by cell towers um, as as critical infrastructure. Right. That's how they access the Internet because wired Internet wasn't available. Um, they the, the that same wireless providers started turning off a bunch of accounts because they were too high of users, even though part of the promise of wireless Internet in rural Montana was that. So, I mean, we all need to invest in this more. Legislatures is part of it. Uh, we also probably need some technological solutions here, too. I know that Internet.org, which was the nonprofit that was invested in by Google, Facebook, dozens of major tech companies was working on like balloon based wireless Internet and had a lot of promising implementations. I think we need to continue with that. Have you seen the Starlink satellites of Elon Musk? Somebody in Facebook up in Edmond. I've heard of these, oh, yeah. Like at, at uh, evening dusk, going across the sky, man. Yep. It's wild. And so that's, yeah, we've, we've got, I mean, 5G is, is coming, okay, allegedly. Uh, but you're going to have to have devices and everything else. And then, you know, Elon. Elon is riding to the rescue with Starlink. So not only will he be connecting the fleet of Teslas to this high-speed Internet, but apparently he'll some people think become the world's largest internet service provider with high speed connectivity to low earth orbit satellites, but none of it's going to happen fast enough for the kids that are out of school right now. And that will probably be out of school for a considerable amount of time in the 2020, 2021. Yep. Couldn't agree more. So it is 10 Oh one here in central Oklahoma. Uh, I don't know where this time went. I think we did stop or we started just a little bit late because of my tardiness. So any additional articles before and I'll, I can go first with uh, my string of geeks of the week if we want, but any other articles do you want to pick up? Um, I, I think we're good for this week, but I will say, and let's, let's deal, let's deal with privacy uh, for first time next week uh, because I, I just keep reading about how there is a lot going on right now in regards to attempts to fish people's accounts. Uh, and I, I had a friend that is a very security conscious that somehow a Microsoft uh, Office 365, this was for a small business one, somehow got hacked into. No idea. This person is one of the most careful people I know that happened. Let's be safe out there, folks. And if you haven't taken the advice from us thus far, it's time for a password manager. It is. It is. And uh, hey, check my YouTube channel. I have a whole webinar recorded about protecting yourself and your family online. All right. Well, my geeks of the week uh, are are numerous. Uh, just learned about this. The wonderful uh, Google experts up in Kansas are going to have a free on-air G Summit coming up June 9th through the 11th. It is free. You can register. You don't have to be in Kansas or even near Kansas to participate. And it's awesome. Back in 2017, uh, I organized what we called G Camp OKC. And a number of those folks like Travis True came down and they are fantastic. They've really got a lot of great sessions. So they're going to basically just have a, a conference. that's a one track conference, but it's going to go for three days and everything will be streamed live and archived as well. Um, really great, uh, 
shout out to Susan Van, Van Gelder, who is, uh, Peggy, one of our great K-12 online organizers for years. She shared this with me on Facebook this last week. What happens next? COVID-19 futures explained with playable simulations. And so, you know, these kinds of visualizations are fantastic, both historically looking at what happened and then projecting for assumptions, uh, you know, based on, you know, how many people do we think COVID is going to or coronavirus is going to kill? How many is it going to infect? Uh, what might things look like? So some really cool uh, visualization algorithms that you can play with. Um, this this comes from Leslie Fisher. Uh, I don't know if, if you liked uh, uh, what was it called? Choose your own adventure stories, Jason, growing up. I did. Um, loved them. Yeah, this is called 57 North, and you can get it either for iOS or Android, but it also works with a merge cube, and it has hundreds of decisions that you have to make. And there's a little surveillance. It's like a story that happens up in Alaska with survival and escape, but there's all these security cameras around. And anyway, it looks so cool. Uh, it was free, I think, last week. It's not free anymore, but it looks so cool. You might want to buy it. Uh, and then back to deep fakes, which we've talked about before. I uh, just have a link to a tweet with some pretty incredible Chris Pratt, Indiana Jones deep fakes. Uh, another reminder, do not believe everything you see on video. Deep fakes are real. And especially for the people who have a lot of <clears throat> video imagery of themselves out there, either on, you know, commercial movies or because they've been on C-SPAN as a public official or whatever. Uh, it's incredible. The deep fake videos where they take the head of Chris Pratt and put it on Harrison Ford in all these Indiana Jones sequences. And so last one, learned about this today. So excited. I uh, had a chance last summer to go up to Rhode Island to the Summer Institute on Digital Literacy. And no surprise, it is going completely virtual this summer. So $400. It is July 14th through the 19th. Absolutely fantastic. I'm definitely uh, sensing that media literacy and digital literacy uh, are, are places that I've just got to be centering myself for my professional career. And I found a wonderful tribe there. They're having uh, monthly media clubs. I got to uh, tune into one of those this week. It is just fantastic. So if you are at all interested in media and digital literacy, this is the summer for you. Check it out. And you can reserve your spot. Registration opens June the 1st. Shout out to Dr. Renee Hobbs uh, and the team there that leads that up. Excellent. Well, I just want to share a quick one. And I, I think I've mentioned a couple of times that, that one of the things that happened under, uh, the COVID lockdown is I have moved from my basement, uh, which was, I had kind of a dark, uh, tiny window basement office, kind of smelled like a basement, wasn't super great, uh, wasn't totally fun to work in. And I moved into a guest room and I'm working on kind of building what my wife likes to call the office of my dreams. But I was going to buy a standing desk and standing desks are expensive. The good ones are expensive. And there's a lot of brand name ones that are pretty, um, are, are, are pretty spendy. And I had re literally researched this for 18 months. But what I discovered was that, uh, you don't need to buy a, you know, a standing desk, uh, that, especially since I'm only maybe a couple of days a week at maximum, uh, raising and lowering the desk, right? Um, so I found this online. It's at Home Depot. It's the Husky brand 62 inch adjustable height workbench table. And it is basically as good or better than any standing desk, electronic standing desk I've used. It has a hand crank, although you can find YouTube videos about adding a motor to it if you are feeling, you know, pretty nerdy. But in essence, uh, it is this wonderful, wonderful standing desk that has a beautiful wood top on it. And then I had been waiting for years to buy this. And so I had a, uh, a, 
clamp-on monitor arm that I didn't really think would work with my ginormous 30-inch Dell monitor. And as it turns out, it works great. And so all my monitors are on arms now. I've used desk space. I am trying to get my um, old microphone system to work again. So the Yeti microphone will be back at some point. It's also clamped to my desk and I'm working on cable management. $229. I paid a little extra because I had to ship to me, although I'm buying a side table for it that's a, a non-adjustable one uh, from Husky that I'm actually going to have her deliver to Home Depot, and my buddy Mike is going to uh, go pick it up and drop it off in my, my driveway. But wonderful standing desk, hardy, it's on wheels, $229, can't go wrong. Awesome. And Peggy George has shared uh, Leslie Fisher's upcoming webinars. I mentioned Leslie, and yeah, she is a fantastic... EdTech guru and source of, of knowledge. So, Dr. Neifer, when we are not able to see the complete package, hair, beard, and space background here on Wednesday nights, where can folks find you? I'm on Twitter at Tech Savvy Teach. Love gauging with people there. Um, I'm also the Northwest Council for Computer Education Tech Savvy Administrator in Residence, um, blog.ncc.org. And I want to encourage, I did do a great webinar a couple weeks back for NCC on master tips for working at home. You can find that archive blog.ncc.org. And you, Dr. Fryer. And we do have that link on episode 175 because that was a Geek of the Week last week. I am on Twitter at WFryer. Blog is speedofcreativity.org. And if I'm able to get some work done this weekend on this long trek up to Colorado, I am planning on offering some virtual iPad media camps and make media camps uh, in in July, early July. And uh, yeah, you can check those out. So this has been the EdTech Situation Room. We want to do a great shout out to Peggy George and Scott Summer for joining us live in our chat room and adding to our conversations. And I, uh, you know, just appreciate the chance to talk with Jason every week. So you can find all of our episodes on edtechsr.com. You can find the document, the Google Doc, which we have been having for 176 episodes now on that edtechsr.com slash links. Follow us on Twitter in just in case something happens. I don't think Jason and I are planning any big trips in the next few weeks, so you're probably stuck with us, but if you've got any kind of suggestions for us, want to suggest a guest topic, uh, we would love to hear from you. So until next time, stay safe, everybody, and we will see you next Wednesday, hopefully, on the EdTech Situation Room. Good night.